Pastor Xavier Reese says it's not enough just to learn about Jesus. How do you view him? Merely as a man? Carpenter's son, as Mark 6, 3 says? Or maybe even as an incredible teacher? How about a prophet? Would you go that far? All those are fine, but they're not good enough. Even as a woman of Samaria went through all those steps and she finally came and said, you are the savior of the world. You're Messiah. That's where Jesus wants you to end up, to realize who he is. You're Messiah. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. Jesus once asked His disciples, Who do you say that I am? And even though they gave Him the most popular answers, He was searching for an even deeper commitment. Today, as Pastor Xavier continues his study in the book of Isaiah, he points to the many prophecies pointing to the one and only Savior of the world. Let's join him for today's study, The Coming King. Despite the dark picture of judgment, particularly in the first 39 chapters, Isaiah has a, the greatest of hope for the nation of Israel, the coming of their Messiah. The prophet Isaiah is known for the vast number of prophecies related to the Messiah and his kingdom throughout his book. The future kingdom of the Messiah has been declared to be on the mountain of the Lord, Zion, the city of Jerusalem where all the nations will flow to it, and he will teach them, judge them, and rule for a thousand years. He has already declared this as soon as chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. J. Barden Payne, the scholar, in his Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy says this, quote, Isaiah ranks first over all the books of Scripture in the number of separate predictions, which total 111, almost one-fourth of these or 27, the highest figure for any book in the Bible, involved figurative language, but relatively few of the predictive verses concern types, only 3%. The book of Isaiah is revealed as second only to Psalms in its quantity of predictions that is directly anticipatory of Jesus Christ, both as the royal son of David and the prophetic priestly servant of the Lord. Isaiah is a treasure chest regarding Jesus Christ from the very beginning. We have everything from his virgin birth to his childhood, his abiding in Nazareth, his humility, his ministry at Galilee, his vicarious death and resurrection, just to mention a few. Judgment is certain now, according to Isaiah. It cannot be averted. The northern kingdom will go into captivity through Assyria, and then ultimately Judah will go into captivity through Babylon. But God was faithful to his remnant. That is a very clear message through his book. Isaiah's name, remember, means Jehovah's salvation. He opens up with the message, come let's reason together, though your sins be red as crimson, they'll be white as snow. This is God's desire to save, always. The proclamation is always primary, salvation. God wants to reach the lost, turn them from their sins. In the midst of gloom and darkness, God proclaims through the prophet Isaiah one of the most amazing prophecies of the coming Messiah who would one day appear upon the earth as a man. And we find it here in these two verses. Our text reveals three elements about the Messiah. Let me read them for us. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, 
And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Let me give you the three elements about the Messiah and his future reign. First, the mystery of his birth in the first portion of verse 6. Then we have the majesty of his kingdom. The next line of verse 6 and all of verse 7. And then thirdly, the multiplicity of his office, the remainder of verse 6. So we're not going to take it exactly in the chronological order, but we've kind of restructured that for the sake of the categories. But let's begin here with the mystery of his birth. Notice, first of all, Isaiah says, For unto us a child is born. The proclamation deals with the child's humanity. The particular statement describes the process by which God would accomplish the mystery. God, who has occupied all eternity from all eternity because he's eternal himself, would one day become man. Something that you and I cannot understand logically. Something that you and I believe by faith. Something that is beyond the understanding of man. Because if we can't understand it, we believe it's not possible. And even in that, what man understands, he's not able to understand the things of God, no matter how smart he is. In fact, Paul says that man usually concludes that it's foolishness. He would be a man born of a woman. A man like you and I, yet perfect. Galatians 4, 4 says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth the son made of a woman under the law. Born just like you, nine months in the womb. There was a birth. There was growth, development, maturity, aging, just like you, yet Perfect. Now that takes faith. But faith isn't just, I hope, I hope, I hope. Faith is believing the revelation of God. That's what faith is. Don't make faith something so mystical. Faith is believing the revelation of God. God has said it. He's revealed it. And I believe it. That's what faith is. The people to whom the child was coming, notice, was the Jews. The plural pronoun us speaks of the Jewish nation. But also the plural pronoun here, us, is also encompassing the entire human race. For God told Abraham that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed, Genesis 12, 3. In other words, the Jews were the primary instrument, but the extension was the Gentile world. From the beginning, he told Abraham. In other words, the Jews were not plan A and the Gentile plan B. And since plan A failed, God turned over to plan B. No. The Gentiles were always included from the beginning. He told that very clear to Abraham. Now notice the promise of, of this child is a constant and progressive one throughout the Old Testament. I'm just going to give you a good little run through just briefly in different sections so you understand this, beginning with Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman. The seed of the woman speaks of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. For the woman has no seed in herself, she has the egg. The man provides the seed. When did he give this promise? Right after the fall. Before the consequence of sin, he gave the promise of redemption. That's the type of God that you and I serve. 
That's the type of God that says, come, let's reason together. If he gave us what we deserve, we'd be crispy critters. Every one of us. The particular time was prophesied by Jacob when Israel had not any power to execute capital punishment, Genesis 49.10. The scepter had been removed. That's why the Jews brought Jesus to Pilate. They had no power of capital punishment. The place of his birth was Bethlehem, according to Micah 5.2. God stirred up the census, got him over there <laughs> in control. The prophet Malachi prophesied of his first and his second coming in Malachi 4, the very last chapter of the last book before 400 years silence. And that just kind of gives you a little run through of the progressive promise of the coming Messiah. Notice, secondly, Isaiah says, unto us a son is given. This proclamation deals with the child's divinity. The father's only son. Literally, the son of his love, as it says in the New Testament. The particular statement describes the person of the mystery, human, but yet now divine. The God-man. Now, when people think the God-man, they think, okay, he was half God, half man. No, he was 100% God and 100% man. 100% man as Adam before the fall. Adam had the capacity to live eternally with God if he wouldn't have sinned. Death is unnatural to man. It's something that entered in after the creation because of disobedience. Our bodies are, are marvelous. They reproduce themselves. It's amazing. But there's something that's been introduced to our body to cause us to start to age and to die. But our bodies are incredible. I mean, if we treated our cars the way we treat our bodies, it would blow up at 100 miles. <laughs> it's amazing. Now notice the people, once again, to whom the child would come was the Jews. Second time. When God says something one time, mark it. When he says it twice, mark it real close. The plural pronoun, us, speaks of the Jewish nation through whom he would be born. He would not only come to them, but he would come through them. But it also encompasses the entire human race, as we said. Because for unto us, the phrase depicts the purpose of his coming. For the good and advantage of mankind, not for his own advantage. What did God have to gain or what advantage did he have to abdicate his throne from all eternity, empty himself of his glory, come to be buffeted, mocked, ridicule, and killed. No benefit for himself. All of it was for the benefit of mankind. Very important. The promise of this child with divinity is throughout the Old Testament law in types. You know the law, the Old Testament. You have the, the lamb that it was supposed to be without blemish and without spot, and the, the priest would examine it. Then they lay their hands on him and kill it. It was an IOU to come. It was in payment. The word atonement in the Hebrew means cover in view of the payment to come. 
The word atonement in the New Testament means that one meant, means total, complete payment. So it was prophetic looking forward to that payment. But the law sacrifice spoke of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. The blood was the payment. Nothing but the blood. Leviticus is very clear. Apart from the blood, there is no remission of sins. I have given you the blood for an atonement upon the altar for sins. It is the precious blood of Jesus Christ, Peter tells us, that we are saved by and forgiven by. Not, not some ritualistic, mystical little beliefism, but it is a literal demand that God required of himself to make that payment. No one else can make that payment. The yearly sacrifice of the scapegoat in October, Yom Kippur. When the one goat would die, the other one would be led into the wilderness, and at intervals men would stand by until they saw the last one see the goat go into the wilderness. When he didn't see him no more, he would relay back the sins of the nation are gone. Every year they would do this, the, the Day of Atonement. They have no longer any basis for the Day of Atonement today because there is no more sacrifices. There is no more token for sin. And Jesus made that very clear, and he ensured that when he allowed Titus to destroy the temple in 70 AD. And since that day, there has never been any animal sacrifice. There's been no atonement for sin through blood. Why? Because Jesus says he doesn't honor that anymore. But even if they were doing it, God would not honor it, because now it's the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. He's the one that takes away our sin. He's the fulfillment of the law. And notice also here that Isaiah was a man of faith waiting for the Messiah to come in the New Testament time who would be both human and divine. He's the proclaimer. He is the vessel. He is the instrument. He's the one that has seen God high and lifted up. And he sees himself with a man of unclean lips. He's a man that's in the midst of unclean lips. And he's the one that first turns to God, gets purified before he can give the message. He must first be a partaker of that which he's going to impart. So important for you and, our, and myself. It's easy to just proclaim. It's easy to just say, but if I'm not living it, woe to me. So important. Personal fulfillment of this child was declared by Matthew in chapter 1 and 2. As the angel says, his name shall be called Jesus. He shall save his people from their sins. That which is conceived in you is of the Holy Spirit, the Holy One. The process is described by John, as difficult as it may seem. In John 1, 1, 1, 14, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and God was the Word, and the Word became flesh, and we beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Wow. God, from all eternities, He became man. Amazing. Paul describes it so vividly in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. He says that being in the form of God, he didn't think it robbery to be equal with God, but he emptied himself of his glory, not his deity, and he took on the form of a servant, and he humbled himself, being obedient even to the death of the cross. And for this reason, he has highly exalted him and given him a name above every other name that is the name of Jesus. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Wow. Being an antecedent condition in the Greek, which means he was God before he came, he was God when he was here, and he was God when he left. What else can you be? How can that be? I don't know, but I thank God it's possible. Amazing. Peter Stoner, in his book, Science Speaks, takes just eight of the messianic prophecies and declares the possibility of their fulfillment. One in ten to the 17th power. For you mathematicians, that's a lot of zeros. To provide a viable comparison, he said it would be like covering the state of Texas with two uh, feet of silver dollars, marking one of them, and then steering them up and having a blind man go out there and, and pulling that one. Now, Jesus fulfilled over 300. How do you view him? Merely as a man? 
carpenter's son, as Mark 6, 3 says, or maybe even as an incredible teacher? How about a prophet? Would you go that far? All those are fine, but they're not good enough, even as the woman of Samaria went through all those steps, and she finally came and said, you, you are the Savior of the world. You're Messiah. <laughs> That's where Jesus wants you to end up, to realize who he is, your Messiah. The message that God gives to us is good news in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. In fact, Jesus fulfilled the law because the law cannot fulfill the righteousness of God in us. Because we are weak. We are sinful. But through his son, he did this, Romans 8, 3 says. Setting them in the likeness of sinful flesh, he condemned sin in the flesh, fulfilling the law because he was perfect. He kept it. In fact, God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. So he took God, his son's perfect life, and he took my perfectly wicked life, and he put it on his son's account, and he took his son's life and put it on my account. Now, who do you think got the best deal? That's the type of God that's proclaiming through Isaiah. Where's the God of wrath of the Old Testament? I just see a God of love pursuing his children. The mystery is revealed by his Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus spent an entire night before he left, before he was crucified and betrayed. John 14, 15, and 16. And he said that it is the Holy Spirit who makes us alive. He will bring the conviction to the Holy Spirit of sin, righteousness, and judgment to bring you to the point and place where you can see yourself as you really are a sinner and that he is the Messiah who can cleanse you from that sin. That's what his desire is. If we confess and we believe in our heart, we shall be saved, Romans 10, 9, and 10 says. That's a promise. The product is your new creature, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. All things pass away, everything becomes new. Everything you ever did, he says he forgives. Everything becomes new, though. There's the follow-up. See, the good part is, oh, yeah, I'm forgiven for everything, everything. But if the everything truly is real, then all the new will be real also, and it'll be new. You're not going to be the same person. You're going to be changed. There's a different manner of thinking, living, trusting. But if you want to grab to the forgiveness and not have your life changed, then you're just deceiving yourself. There's no such gospel. The mystery of his birth is revealed here by God. Who could dream up this mystery? What man could imagine such a thing? God had to reveal it. Notice, secondly, the majesty of his kingdom is given to us in the next line there of verse 6, and then we'll move to 7. First of all, Isaiah says, regarding the majesty of his kingdom, that the government will be upon his shoulders. As suffering Messiah, he was in complete control, though things seemed to be out of control. Keep that in mind. The fact of being on his shoulders is a symbol of magistrates who had a rod or a key laid on their shoulders representing the honor and majesty and authority they had. Now, he is going to be a, such an individual, Isaiah says, that when he judges, it's going to be absolutely great, perfect. And he'll share that a little more clear later on. 
Man has authority and power here, but he usually uses that authority and power to benefit himself and to make life miserable for others. You watch a person, wherever you work, even in, in the church, there's a danger of that always. When people have power, they, they, they destroy people's lives. They rule over them. They have the ability to do what they want. You know, later on, it's not a matter of more money or more power. It's just the ability that you can do whatever you want, and you can change people's lives, and you can do good or you can do bad. And that is intoxicating to man because he's evil. Complete control, so he thinks. The decree of Caesar to have Mary go to Bethlehem, according to the census in Luke 2, was God's doing. God was in control. Now, the Jewish nation thought everything was out of control. But God was in control. He wasn't biting his nails. He, 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 was, he was up there. And you might look at your life this morning. Maybe things are going on in your life that you're not absolutely too happy about. Maybe you're reaping the, some of the consequences from your, from your life before Christ. Well, hang in there. Trust God for him. Don't freak out. He's in control. He is sufficient for it. Don't bail out. Stay in the boat. In the triumphal entry, Jesus came in as a conquering king. According to Zechariah 9.9. You find it in Matthew 21, Luke 19. And yet, it didn't seem like it. Because then they took him and crucified him. But God was in control. He was an authority. The very arrest and crucifixion of Jesus was under God's control. You see, God the Father crucified his son for you and for me. And yet, he never violated the Jews' will or the Roman will, Pilate or anybody else. Because God cannot violate a man's will. And yet he works within that sinful choice and rebellion to accomplish his purposes. That's what makes him God. He knows the end from the beginning. In fact, the resurrection defied the Roman guard as well as death. The grave could not hold him. Now as reigning Messiah, he now rules in the hearts of his people in the church. We still don't see his rule here on earth, do we? but we do see it in the hearts of men and women. And if you have bowed your knee to him, then he rules over your life. He controls your life. He tells you how to live, and you follow that. Today, there's a great compromise in the church. People love to be called Christians. People love to say they're following Jesus, but there's compromises that go on. Now, you compromise with sin, it'll kill you. You make compromises that don't deal with salvation, you won't live abundantly. And there are many people who are compromising a complete obedience to God because they have been so affected by the culture and they rationalized everything and they start mixing in certain things from the world with their Christian life and it hurts them, it hurts their children, it hurts their lives, it hurts their witness. You've got to trust God in obedience. He didn't say he'd make you rich. He said he'd make you real. He didn't say you'd be popular. He said you'd be the people of God. He didn't say you would be on a throne in this worldly kingdom, but you would be a child of the king who would rule the kingdom. There's a vast difference. Jesus carries out the care and protection 
and the conditions of his people in the church. Those who walk with him. Pastor Xavier Reese, illustrating how when we pick up the cross to follow Jesus, we're left with no other choice than to leave worldly concerns behind. And there's much more to come next time, but if your schedule won't permit you to tune in, you can pick up a copy of this message. The title to ask for is The Coming King. It's available on CD for only $4. And make sure you pass on this study to someone in your church or Bible study. So once again, the title to ask for is The Coming King, or simply mention today's date when you get in touch. Send your request to Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And thanks for mentioning the call letters of this station when you get in touch. This helps us track the effectiveness of this ministry in your area. God is holy. Man is sinful. How is it possible that both inhabit heaven? Find out when you join Pastor Xavier Reese for the next edition of Simple Truths. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. www.calvarychapelpasadena.com 